You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and Happy New Year. This is our first episode of 2019, and we are back to the interviews. We took a little break last week from featuring guests and instead had a year in review featuring our producer extraordinaire, Demarcus. So if you haven't checked that out, make sure you listen to episode 47. But this episode features a great guest, Siobhan Messiah. Siobhan is a partner experience manager at Twitter, a position that is well-deserved considering her extensive background in events, client relations, and attendee experience. But Siobhan did not always land the job of her dreams. During our conversation, she walks us through how she ended up as a marketing major at Temple and what it really took to jumpstart her career. If you are an avid listener of the show, you already know it was not easy. So without further ado, please enjoy. Siobhan Messiah, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm happy to have you. Happy you took time out in your final week in New York City to speak to us, which we'll get into as well. But tell us, who is Siobhan Messiah? So every time someone asks me this question, I have a horrible time answering it. Um, But I've come to this point where I realize that Siobhan Messiah is someone who thrives off of inspiring others to get inspiration for herself. Um, She's someone who tries to work her hardest and also just tries to be the best person she can every day which is not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, it's not as easy for any of us, I think, to be the best people that we can be, especially Mm -hmm. in hostile work environments and Mm -hmm. places where we may be the minority, which I want to talk about as well during this interview. But let's talk a little bit about that inspiration. So in what ways do you think that you inspire other people? Like, how do you go about that? I think that people think that inspiration comes from like the Oprah's and the Michelle Obama's, which they absolutely do. Mm -hmm. But then um, to me, in my experiences, that just being a person who tries really hard, who supports somebody, other your friends, your family, who is genuinely just a good person is an inspiration to others. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to tell my stories, whatever the story may be, whether it be good or bad, genuinely without a gimmick or whatever the case may be. And sharing that and relating to people is sometimes just a motivation and inspiration to other people. Absolutely. So let's start to unpack your story. I want okay. to start on the professional side. Okay. Um, you are, you've taken a new job. Yes. And you're moving. Where will you be working? So I am now a partner experience manager for Twitter. Um, and I am making the bicoastal move from New York to California. To I'm San hating Francisco. a little. Not going to lie. <laughs> the I, Bay Area is great. I, you're not into I it? It wasn't the plan mm-hmm. at all. Like it was not the plan. Um, uh, my previous company, TED uh, Conferences, I was working for a company that produces TED Talks. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know, they're online videos. Um, also kind of inspiration, different topics. People go talk about something for about 18 minutes or less. And um, it could just basically, the theme is ideas worth spreading. I was there for about three years. I was about to hit three years and I was just kind of realizing there was no growth. And I've been the type to stay in companies to the point where I hated it. So it was right. like kind of like, They let me go or it was like a desperation move versus actually making a strategic move for my career. And um, this position was kind of like 
they reached out to me. Twitter reached out to me. And after I had an amazing first call with the hiring manager, nothing like formal, just really just kind of talking. She was like, I really like you. It sounded amazing. It was like almost exactly aligned with what I did. And she was like, yeah, but it's in Cali. And I was so like, they didn't even Ooh. give you an option to stay here. No, okay. she was like, there's no way we could base it in New York. We have a New York office, but this position, which is pretty much I'm working with client revenue partners um, and being kind of like a cultural ambassador internally for Twitter and working with their meetings and things like that. At HQ, it just could not happen. I would be flying to SF like at least once a week. So it was kind of like, this is it's either this or nothing. So I had so to- you made really, the choice. Um, yeah, I kind of I kind of went with it and see where the universe led me and it it just happened. So, Well, let me ask you, are you excited about the move? Um, now I am. Now, now I have are. a place. <laughs> I found a place literally yesterday. So um, I'm excited about the move. Um, this is a little weird because I'm, I'm born and bred New Yorker, mm-hmm. only left to go to school in Philly. I went to Temple. And then I came right back, like, last final. Mm-hmm. My mother was like, what time you want to pick me up? And I was like, girl, I'm packed. <laughs> just come here. Come get me. Born and bred New Yorker. Yeah. So it, I just never planned on leaving New York. If I did, possibly Atlanta. So this is just kind of like, this is kind of like a leap of faith. I think it's going to work out for you. I just I just feel that's that it's going to be okay. I'm, everybody has that for me. Yes, and I appreciate that. I, I feel that. So, so I appreciate it. <laughs> let's break it down a little bit more. You talked mm-hmm. about in this new role, you're going to be working with client revenue partners. What does that mean exactly? So people who pay for like advertising, mm-hmm. pay for partnerships with Twitter. Um, a lot of times there are campaigns with Twitter. Hashtags are cultivated to actually um, to create experiences through Twitter. So those people like McDonald's, Wendy's, uh, I'm just naming some. Mm-hmm. I actually have not really started the role, so I don't know the full clients or whatever. But um, think big companies that want to start projects with Twitter. Uh, those are the people I work with. So when they come do their Silicon Valley tours, um, they want to have some type of Twitter partnership collaboration, work with them to create those experiences. So it's kind of like event planning, brand ambassador, logistics operations, um, working with the executive team. It's just like a mosh pit of different things, which I love because I would have gotten bored just doing the same thing every day. Right. So how did you get here? Like when you went to college, <laughs> did, you, did you say, okay, I want to be in event management and I want to work with, you know, these brands, et cetera. How how bad do we get to this point? So when I was, when I entered into college, I was pre-med. I definitely was pre-med and I went to a biology class and I had to cut a rat open and almost threw up. Like it was hard. It was, it was one of the most horrific experiences of my life. It was smelly and I don't get sick easily. Mm -hmm. And when I got back to my room to pick up my stuff, because I had literally run out the room, the teacher was like, what are you going to do when you have to cut open cadavers? And I was like, excuse me, (laughs) wait a minute. I was like, cadavers as in dead people. He was like, yeah, like, you know, that's part of medical school. So I grabbed my stuff and I walked right to the business school and I was like, hey, when's, how do I get into the marketing (laughs) course? And they were like, what's your major now? I said, biology. And they were like, you know, that's a completely different like college within the university. You have to take a placement test. I was like, when's the next placement test? They were like in an hour. And I was like, I will see you there. And I took that placement test and I. So that's how you decided to major in marketing. Yeah, I always loved people and I always loved, I was always great at math. And to me, people plus math equals marketing. I didn't like I'm from first generation West Indians. Mm -hmm. I know doctor. I know lawyer. And I just happened to know marketing because my aunt is the only one who wasn't in the medical field. She had 
worked for like MasterCard and all this. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just do that then because that's that's obviously what's left. So Got I it. did that. But I was lucky enough to graduate during the recession. So nobody was hiring for marketers. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of like fell into this weird career path where I was, again, taking anything I could. I did an internship with CVS Caremark um, for management and marketing. They weren't hiring for marketers. So I just took an assistant manager role mm-hmm. in one of their stores, um, went from there to Costco working for their sales department, went from Costco to a conference company working for their sales department, then went to sponsorship, then did a little bit of marketing with them. Um, I got a position at JP Morgan Chase mm-hmm. working in mortgages and client relations. And I thought that's where it was it. Like, I'm like, okay, this is where the the money is. This is where the money is. Mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan Chase, this is every West Indian's dream. Like, a (laughs) banker? What? My grandmother was about to be hyped. We about to get all the free accounts. I don't got to pay for checkbooks no more. I was hyped. You thought you were getting free checks? I thought I was, listen. Everybody. You get a free check and you get a free check. this good insurance too? (laughs) I'm about to get these teeth fixed. I was like, everything. Um, And then I got there and I did not interact with people at all. Mm -hmm. And I was miserable. And I also realized like the position that I was in was working with people who were on the brink of foreclosure Mm -hmm. and making sure that their applications were like proper, like there wasn't any like um, foul play, nothing was overlooked, just kind of reviewing foreclosure applications. And it was so depressing. Yeah, I was about to say like, so it was just horrible. People were writing in, talking about why they were going into foreclosure, what the situation was. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I'm not helping these people. I'm just reading their story and being like, oh, maybe, maybe it was a mistake, but most of the time it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing I could do. And it was just kind of like, nah, I can't keep doing this. So I left JP Morgan to go back into conferences because I didn't even know that was an industry at that time. Like I knew people put on conferences, but I didn't know there was a conference industry. Um, I had already been doing event planning on the side for Mm -hmm. nonprofits and small businesses. So it just worked out and um, I started doing small concentrated events for C-suite, different um, different groups, a lot of diversity inclusion. And from there, I was just really happy with what I was doing, but not for the company. Um, right. I was kind of a number. I had sat next to the CEO a few times, actually planned a dinner with him and he still didn't know my name after two and a half years. Sounds like, about right. And um, I was just in a place where I was working with diversity inclusion, C-suite, chief diversity officers, VPs, and I remember I had used to wear my hair straight all the time and they I had cut all my hair off, decided to go curly, decided to go natural. Mm-hmm. And I remember my manager saying, you sure that this is like a professional look for you? Like asking, she heard in the corner. <laughs> um, every time I would wear my hair straight, like just maybe randomly straighten it. She was like, you should keep your hair like this yeah, all they, the time. They give you the suggestion, the, little, yes. the suggestions that I did not ask for. Like I didn't ask you sis, but thank mm-hmm. you. I remember me having a nose ring that I got hired with and them asking her purchasing foundation for me on a trip to put on my nose ring because it may offend some of our clients. Like it just, it wasn't a space. And then I'm at a place working with diversity and inclusion. We're promoting clients who support diversity and inclusion, but we didn't even have it in our organization. Which I think that's the dirty little secret that yeah. people don't understand. A yeah. lot of the folks who are in the public eye promoting diversity mm-hmm. don't really have the numbers no. to back that up behind the scenes. It happens all the time. So many diversity and inclusion programs are the fact that something wild happened in the organization. Right. And they realized that they needed someone to just cover their butts like and they pulled somebody from HR who was a woman who was ethnic and right. it was just kind of like hey girl they try to check you like the boxes black people at once you are yes. black you want to come do this and at that point 
if you you have two options, you don't do it and you let your company keep going or you're mm-hmm. invested in a company, you want to be an advocate. So you take this position you had no intention of right. taking. And now you went in trying to do organizational management. And now you're a diversity and inclusion manager. And it's kind of kind of just happens. Um, I think people need to start working on diversity and inclu- inclusion from the strategic portion. But that's another part. Yeah, we're going to get we're definitely going to get, get to that. It. But let's let's take it back when you decided all the way back to when you said I'm going to be a marketer. Mm-hmm. So West Indian as well. Yes. Uh, my dad's from Jamaica. So I, I know that medical is like it. Right. Yeah. You go in healthcare, maybe law, mm-hmm. but people don't really understand that you can be successful and profitable in other areas. Mm-hmm. So when you called home and told your family, yeah, I'm not doing biology anymore. I'm doing marketing. What was the response? Even though you had an aunt who worked in the space. I didn't tell them. <laughs> I just, I kind of just went to the school and then my mother was like, how, how is, um, do you need any help with your like anatomy home? Cause my mother is amazing. She's labor and delivery nurse. Mm-hmm. She's a childbirth educator. She's one of the smartest nurses that I know people say they know. She's just great at what she does. And she offered help. And I was like, about hey, that. So I need more help with my math since I'm now in the business school. And she was like, what? And they were supportive. My family is not, um, they're on the milder side of the West Indians. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that they're not like super strict. Um, they're not like yelling all the time, but they kind of, they let me kind of make my own decision. Okay. But she was kind of just like, what's your plan? And I was like, mm, I changed schools. That was the plan. And in my head, I was going to graduate, be a marketing manager within right. three to five years, have a house by 28 married kids like of course we all have those boxes we're about to check we think the dream I'm like Mm -hmm. okay this is the plan what you mean I told you what the plan was it's just a different major it's gonna be the same trajectory and yeah so you get out, you're in the middle. So this is like 08, 09. Yeah, 07. 07 08, yeah. in there. Okay. You get out. When you say you were an assistant manager at CVS, you mean like in the store? In the store. I was closing the store. <laughs> I was doing cash wrap. Like I was ringing people up. I was doing planograms. I was in the store. Do you remember how much you were making at that time? Jesus. Not to shout out. Uh, no, no, no. Not to put CVS on it's blast. Just, but it's just very humbling when yeah. you think about it real quick. I think I was making like 9 or $10 an hour. No, I thought you were at least going to say you were in the teens. Nine or $10 Nine an hour. Nine or $10 an Because I had no prior experience. I had been working at CVS on and off for years. But you had a degree. But I had a degree. It still was not considered. It still was not considered. Prior experience. Prior experience. Okay, so you come out of Temple. Yeah. Great business program. Yeah. You're back in New York. Mm-hmm. Are you living on your own or are you back home at this point? Because <laughs> nine Girl, or ten dollars. I was living with Laura and Sharon and Francine <laughs> and all of them. I was living with my family. <laughs> like, little brothers walking into my room. I'm 23, not caring, like waking me up, turning on Teletubbies while I'm trying to sleep. Like I was living at home. So what were you feeling in that moment? Were you like, this is just what I need to do until something else opens up? Or was there that feeling of like, wow, I did what I was supposed to do. I went to school and look at where I am. Um, So I will say one thing about me is I kind of believe everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Things fix itself. And I was a little discouraged, but I wasn't kind of like I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't okay. I wasn't taken aback. I wasn't in a rut. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to not I'm not going to just sit back and not make any money. Mm-hmm. Like I also didn't take a lot of steps that I could have. I didn't do a lot of mentorship programs and things like that. That I didn't have mentors at all. Like those weren't things that I knew that I needed. Mm-hmm. So I worked all through college. Like if you talk to anybody from Temple, they'd be like, Siobhan had eight jobs at all times. Classic she, West Indian she story. She was at the bookstore. <laughs> she was selling books. She was doing here. I, uh, I was an RA. I had an internship at like at Morgan Stanley. I had literally eight jobs and they were like, I don't know how you even graduated, mm-hmm. but 
I didn't take the actual like academic or professional steps to make sure I was set after I graduated, which I think is what hindered me. Sure. But also it kind of helped me to get where I was at because I probably would have still been marketing and I would have been miserable. Mm-hmm. Like I love what I do, even no matter what company I do it for. So I kind of feel like I needed to do that. But I still think that there's so much value in mentorships and internships and taking advantage of every single program that universities and whatever offers. So, But I think you highlighted a couple of good points that I, I want to talk about. First is, you know, especially for communities of color, we're told go to school, go to school, go to school. and you go and you're meant to get everything out of it that you can, but people don't take into consideration that you might have to work mm-hmm. a lot of jobs. So it's not like you're there, you know, and you're not everybody's getting a stipend from home where they mm-hmm. can just really soak <laughs> in the college experience yeah. and prepare and invest for graduation day. So if you're carrying a full course load and you're also working just to make sure that you can eat and mm-hmm. that your bills are paid, who has time to do the ancillary professional development? Mm-hmm. No. And this is like a huge gripe for me when people are like, well, I pulled myself up on my bootstraps and I networked and I got an opportunity. And I'm like, yeah, because you had the bandwidth to do that. Mm-hmm. Not everybody. Absolutely. That's not everybody's story. It's not anybody's story. I paid my I paid for everything for college. Yeah. I have loans. I have loans. Yeah, let's like, not even talk about <laughs> Like it, I right? have loans. I remember sophomore year, I probably made an egg any way that you can make it. Like I, that was just the cheapest thing you could buy. Like people didn't understand. And my mom, like she was doing, she had a lot of help from my family, mm-hmm. but it was pretty much just my mom. Like, and then my stepdad came along, but he was, he went back to school the same time I did. Wow. So my mom was helping him. She had two other kids that were very young. My brothers were four and two by the time I started college. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of like, all right, you made it here. And it was always kind of like, oh, Siobhan is smart. She'll get a full ride to she wants to go and I did have a partial scholarship but it was kind of like mm. you gotta make up the difference yeah and I I couldn't stay home to go to school or I would have been doing the most with my family of course my boyfriend was out there I would have probably still been in school 30 at 33 <laughs> there are people who have that story too yeah just, with all those distractions yeah so you know that's one thing I wanted to highlight but then the other thing also is coming out there are a lot of people who are in that situation and then they come out and they say I did what I, I was supposed to do and I don't have a job in my chosen field like what did I go through all that for? And, mm-hmm. and what I respect about your story is saying, you know what? I didn't, I wasn't able to, or I didn't do the mentorship part. I didn't seek out those connections. So I had some ground to make up because mm-hmm. no matter the circumstances, whether it's your fault or driven by something externally, you do have to acknowledge that they are yeah. circumstances that affect your Absolutely. situation. And, you know, everybody knows that network is what does it a lot mm-hmm. of the times, for, especially in a situation where employment or jobs are not everywhere and you've got to really leverage your connections or make yourself stand out. So I appreciate you saying that because I hear people say all the time, like, I did what I was supposed to do mm-hmm. and why isn't it happening? And then when you start asking questions, it's like, well, you didn't do quite everything you were I mean, supposed to do. At this point, I kind of think of what's what are you supposed to do? Like, mm-hmm. everybody has this plan. And yeah. how many plans have gone like to hell? Like, everybody has a plan. And I don't know anybody in my life who the plan has gone according to plan. Like that's just not how life works. It's it's not. So I never said I've done what I'm supposed to do or things like that. I mean I probably have said it in the moment mm-hmm. of like being upset, but it's not something that I've kind of just like harped on because it's it's like I realize the best parts of my life have come from me being completely taken by surprise. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. So you're moving into this new role. Mm-hmm. What is it that you want to accomplish? What's the mark you want to leave on Twitter? 
Um, I'm not, sounds crazy, but I'm not sure yet. Mm -hmm. I know that I love what I do and I was given the opportunity to do that at Twitter, which was one of my points, not leaving Ted as early as I did because I didn't just want to do anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to leave for leaving sake. Um, I think Twitter is a great company with amazing growth. Um, One of the things I really admire about them is their diversity and inclusion program. Um, I've worked in diversity and inclusion kind of not on the side, but been an advocate for it and working with it for quite some time now. But it's never been something that I wanted to fully work in. Like I didn't want that to be my job. Right. So being at a company where I can be really actively involved in it and they support that, but I still have my actual like career is really important to me. And I really want to be able to to have some type of influence in the way that they work the organization. And as big as it seems, because it's such a popular Mm -hmm. social media network, it's a little under 4,000 people, which is not like the mega giants of like Google and Facebook. And it's a lot of small teams within it. So there's actually a good amount of influence from the employees, which I love. So as I get there and really see how the company works and gets settled, I'll probably have a more definite goal. But I just want to be able to influence the company in a positive way. Sure. And what's your greatest concern about leaving New York City? Where am I going to get my West Indian food and hear my soca? Yeah, I don't have any answers. For nobody. You. <laughs> Honestly, nobody. Maybe Oakland. I'm living in Oakland and everybody in Oakland is like, sis, you about to get a culture shop. Yeah, I, I, I like, I've been out there several times and I can't tell you where to get nope, good West Indian food. No, it's okay. Food. I went on a listserv and the West Indians was asking me back. <laughs> So there's no answer. You better pack a double in your suitcase. Um, yeah, it's about to be. <laughs> I'm just my mother. She has to learn how to freeze dry things. And right. Over. Freeze dry one of those little thermal containers. And I can cook, I, but people don't even know where to get West Indian the ingredients, spices and yeah. stuff. And I'm like, wow. You might be out of luck. You better start planning those trips back oh, home. Oh, no. I'll be back home in a month. <laughs> so. so tell me a little bit more about Ted, because Ted has reached mythical status, mm-hmm. right? Especially for people who want to be an, an influencer mm-hmm. or who write or who's, you know, who speak, entrepreneurs. Everybody wants that clicker and the little mic and the opportunity yes. to tell their story. You don't know how many times as soon as people found out where I work, they were like, wow, my dream is to give a TED talk. And I was like, everybody's is. Thank right. You. Every Everybody. So we're you how were you involved in that process of like those talks at TED what was your role so my role really wasn't dealing with the talks Mm -hmm. I was there for the events in which the Mm -hmm. talks were put on so I was a customer experience program manager so those talks come from conferences and events and um, TED is actually a nonprofit. conferences were the source of revenue that literally paid the employees bills and gave back to the programs that made them nonprofits. made it a nonprofit. Um, my role was basically when we had these events and our main conference, which people really kind of look at me crazy. Our main conference was $10,000 minimum. That's the basic ticket. Yep. That's that look everybody gives me. How many days? It's five days. Okay. So two grand a day. So two grand. Do you get your meals and lodging with that? Or you is get that your just breakfast you? and lunch and okay. some most dinners? All right. So you still got to find a place to lay your head. Okay. Yes. And you're, you're obviously your flight. Mm-hmm. Um, I, people were paying 10,000 minimum. Then there was a 25,000 <laughs> ticket. And a 250000 ticket. My job was to make sure those people who paid so much to come to this event mm-hmm. 
had the most amazing experience in their life. So making sure communications made sense, making sure that when they walk on site, it wasn't confusing. Like I just pretty much was the overlying attendee experience and making sure that I'm looking at an attendee perspective and making sure it is amazing for them. So little things like making sure we had a, a mother's room so breastfeeding mothers can go in there and it wasn't like a jail cell while they were doing right. They still pay $10,000. They still want to see the talks, making sure that we had sponsors who were like sage, which are like oil and diffusers and kind of why didn't we put a diffuser in that room? Like thinking high level like that. So that was my job on top of communications operations and um, high level customer support. So. So did you ever stop and think like I'm in this company and helping to facilitate information? Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, the irony is that from a live perspective, there's a very small segment of the population that actually has access to mm-hmm. have that experience. Did you ever think about that? And did that create a moral dilemma for you? Yes, all the time. And it was one of the reasons that I kind of really enjoyed the company, but also realized it was time to go because at first I went in there really bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to make the change. Like, okay, I am this young Black woman. I'm here with all these ideas. It's a small company. I have direct access to the CEO and our directors who are pretty much the high levels. There's no like C-suite or VPs. It's directors and then our curator. Um, And I was like, I can make this difference. I can tell them I can start getting more people in. And it was just so humbling to see people really don't have, it's $10,000. Right. No one has that. Even if you worked at a great company, most companies aren't paying $10,000 unless you're like the top of the tier. Exactly. And And especially post-recession. Yeah. They were tossing money around the JPs of the world like before 07, Mm -hmm. 08. But now it's like you have to have a legitimate justification on top of being very senior in the Mm -hmm. company. And and the J.P. Morgans and the Morgan Stanleys, those are great, but that's not really Ted's audience. Mm-hmm. So it's you have the money and you have to actually apply to Ted. You can't just pull up like because you got the <laughs> you ten. Can't be like, hey, I'm in, I'm in here. Like, we still yeah. coming. Like <laughs> you can't do that at Ted. You actually have to apply to be there. So um, it was just really hard. The first, the big Ted sold out, but like the smaller ones, like the Ted Women's and the other ones, which were still cheaper, still it was hard to sell because it's a lot of people didn't have that. Those companies didn't give them the bandwidth. So, um, but being there was just kind of realizing like the people who attend the conferences were completely opposite of the people who are literally feeding their souls with the videos that come from right. these conferences. And I would look and I'm like, there has to be a way to to kind of bring these together. And I had a few ideas. I started working with other people to create a diversity inclusion program at TED. Um, I helped bring people who were influencers and positive and activists and just people who were really um, change makers in their industries that were aligned with TED and thought they would benefit from it and help spread the word and possibly help make changes Mm -hmm. internally, bringing them to the actual conference. We had a program where a few people were picked to get free passes, Um, working with them for that. It it was great. And it, there definitely was change. Um, but all that hard work and building, one, it didn't seem like it was growing as fast as it could. A lot of it, resources going into things that to me and for what the company is, didn't seem like a priority. Mm-hmm. And then two, I put a lot of work in and it was just kind of like, we really appreciate you. We don't know what we're going to do, with, what we would do without you, but there's no way we can pay you extra or give you a promotion. And I was like, all right, so I can stay and keep working to make that change or I can still I can be an ally for them while getting myself together. Right. And I had to make that decision. I mean, I balls when I left. Like I was bawling, like crying. 
but it was just a hard decision I had to make. And how do you reconcile? Because I know I struggle with this. A lot of folks of color that I interact with, Mm -hmm. with like, we want to make change, Mm -hmm. right? So we want to be the one that goes in there and blazes the trail and gives ideas and works our fingers to the bone to create other opportunities. But you can give 110% and not see the raise Mm -hmm. or not see the title, Mm -hmm. right? So it's affecting your career specifically. And then we end up leaving, Mm -hmm. hoping that we made some impact before we go now somewhere else. How do you reconcile um, a sense of, I don't want to call it obligation, Mm -hmm. but knowing that you want to make that impact, but not being able to break the ceiling in a sense and often having to move before you saw what your vision was for what you want to contribute to that organization manifest? I have been, like I said, I've been in a bunch of different careers and career wise, personal wise, at this age, I realized that people are loyal to a fault Mm -hmm. and that loyalty is great. I'm a strong advocate for loyalty, but there's a point where loyalty is kind of hindering. And when it comes to your career, as long as you kind of make a lasting and positive impression, don't leave on bad notes, you really have to kind of just do what's best for you. And it's a hard choice. Like you you go in there, you think, like you said, you're going to make this big impact. You're going to be the thing that changes the organization and your vision may not align, but that's not like a, that's not a failure. I thought that at one point I did fail at what my, my goal was going to Ted. And when I left, I realized that that was just my own kind of thought process because so many people came up to me was like, it's not going to be the same. You've made such a difference in the company. And it, it made me realize that I have to kind of sit back and assess the situation and like really realize that my impact was there. Um, and I don't have to be so hard on myself and really kind of put myself first because if I would have stayed there, I would have probably ended up like either either being in a, not depressed, but really being in a state where I did not like the company and leaving on bad terms eventually, or they might've fired me because I just would have not been in as invested as I was. And often when you get to that state, as you alluded to earlier, you just make a decision to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's like, I just have to get out of here, which I think for 26ers especially is an ongoing struggle because we we are people who like want to give it 110 at all times. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be seen as a disappointment or let people down. So then we're pushed to the brink though. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I'm just going to take whatever I can get because I can't do this or I'm going to leave. I don't even know what's next, but I'll figure it out. And that is not a great space to make a decision from at all. At all. all. When you're put in a box, instead of being strategic, you make such hasty decisions. And I just, I'm not, like I said, plans don't ever work. But the thing is, you can still set yourself up for success. You can put yourself in the in the best possible place for you. So I just, I did not want to get to that point. And also I think a lot of it is a lot of people have imposter syndrome. And true, I am, I feel like I am the head of the imposter syndrome association. Like <laughs> President I, and chairman listen, of the board. I, but again, it goes back to, I thought I didn't make that impact, but that I did. And so many people are like, oh, you, you're doing this at TED. And I'm like, really? They're like, when we can't wait for you to get to Twitter, you're about to shake things up. And I'm like, am I? And it's, it's kind of like, that's one of the biggest hindrances. You have to address that imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and like, look, either it happens or it doesn't. I went, I tried, I did what I can. And I gave, again, I gave my best. The best may not be the same every day. Some days may be better than others, but if you give your best, that's, that's really all you can do. Well, what do you say to someone who is struggling with that imposter syndrome? It may be about to walk into a new opportunity. And and I mean, let's keep it real. Like the major, like the big startups of the world that we all Mm -hmm. know by name, they're not, they're often not a lot of people who look like us. Mm. Oh no. In those environments. So on the one hand, you're, you're meeting folks who are in very senior roles at a very young age because Mm. startup 
culture does not play by the regular rules of corporate America. Mm-mm. So your COO could be 29, like, or what have you. So Literally. you're dealing with that. And you're also dealing with the fact that, you know, let's just look at us. Like, I'm a black woman mm-hmm. going in this environment. So I know I'm going to be a minority on a lot of different levels. What do you say to that person that's like, I don't know how to get beyond the imposter syndrome? I don't think there is an ab- uh, imposter syndrome is literally something that people put in their heads. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a getting beyond it because I I haven't got beyond it. Like, I think it's working with it and addressing it. And if you have it, kind of just being like, I know what this is. I'm going to try. It really might just be me being a dummy. Like, it just, mm-hmm. it might just be my own thoughts or it may not be, how am I going to know? Am I going to really just sit back and let this take over me? And I think it's the same thing with anxiety. Like, with all those things, you could either succumb to it or you can really just take it day by day and work forward and see what the outcome is. Because if you did nothing, like the first thing I learned in sales was the answer is always no if you don't ask. And that is one of the biggest lessons I've always taken in my life. So I'm always going to be a failure if I don't try. Those are the things that I take with me every single day, even with the imposter syndrome. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But if I don't start to do this, I'm never going to do this. So that's just kind of like how I work with it and work around it. Yeah. And I I often remind myself, not even just in this instance, when when people annoy me or... (laughs) address me in a way that I don't think they should have. I have to say, you know, everyone's in their own personal battle. Mm-hmm. So you have that small segment of the population who, you know, you can't tell them they are not the pinnacle. And like, no, you know, we, we have those and there are a lot of them in startups, the oh, megalomaniacs yeah. who, you yeah. know, best thing since Mark Zuckerberg. But for the most part, people internally are having the same conversations with mm-hmm. themselves. Can I actually do this? Can I rise to the occasion? Even when somebody came to them, like Twitter came to you. You mm-hmm. didn't look for Twitter. There's still that that expectation of like, okay, I need to go in a day one and knock it out of the park, mm-hmm. which is unrealistic, quite frankly. Yeah. You've got to go and do your, your data gathering, figure it out. And I think people know on the other side too, this person, we chose them for a reason and they have what, they, what it takes to figure it out. Yeah. Nobody goes in on day one, like not. And if you do, God bless. I don't know what kind of machine you are, mm-hmm. but I know that any company I go to, I need at least eight months to a year before. Right. I even know the company itself, the systems, like the real underlying workings of the organization. And then once I have that down pack, that's when I can start building the extra stuff, like making the changes. Like, how can I make a change to a system that doesn't, I don't know how it works. Like, how can I say, let's do this when I don't know what they've been doing before? Like, they may have done this and it didn't work. I can't just come with ideas if I actually don't have done my research. So I think a lot of people just kind of go in trying to blaze this trail, but they don't even know like what the path was before. So you got to yeah. kind of learn that. But I think part of that is just the startup culture that we live in, mm-hmm. right? Everything feels like it needs to be overnight. Yeah. Overnight sensation. I took this company from zero to a billion dollar valuation in five years. Everybody wants a piece of that mm-hmm. to be able to come in and say, I maximized impact and I did all of this in the first six months of the job, mm-hmm. which is it just does not work like that. And it doesn't. But also a lot of those people who go into startups, they don't stay in startups. Right. People who want to make lasting impressions, they it doesn't work like that. Like people who want to actually stay in a company and really grow it, it, it takes time. Absolutely. And the gr- uh, startups, and I will say startups give you a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. to make bigger changes faster. And I'm not saying that you can't, but when it comes to larger organizations, when it comes to 
things that are trying to make impacts and be around for a very long time. I think that you need that foundation. Like, right. It's startups are great. I will completely give them that. But I just feel like a lot of startups don't even have a lot of startups don't have the intention of staying around forever. No, they're trying to get big enough to get bought out. Yeah. Or, you know, go public and then and take a salary. Yeah. But they've made all this money. And, and I, I know that the companies that I work for, I can't work like that. I mm-hmm. need something that is routine, that is solid. I've never gone into a company planning on staying there for two or three years. Like I've every company I've gone into, I've gone with the intention of building there and making this my home for the next how many years. And it doesn't it. It doesn't work like that. We outgrow whatever the case may be. And that's fine. But I've never gone in with the intention that I'm leaving in a year. Right. So. Which I think a lot of people do. They now. do. And, like, and that works for them. But get it, on the resume and go. I just to me, I, I I can't work like that. I need to I need to actually be invested. And that's how I give my all. And whether it works out great, if it doesn't, we at least I know I gave my best. I didn't go in there with like, I don't even know what the word is. I was like, a half effort. Yeah. Yes. There we go. Yeah, That's the word. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's you brought up a point that I want to touch on is that you have to be invested and in it has to be the right role to be invested because people take positions or they pursue opportunities mm-hmm. for the money or the title or what they think is right for them. Or the company name. Yes. Just like, I'm just going to build in the company. Exactly. Let and me just be a janitor. I'll be fine. Right. And I'm going to climb the ladder and work my way up, not realizing that that is not the right opportunity Mm -hmm. for them, period. So they get in and they're like, "Uh oh, this is not what I thought. And it's like, this is why I encourage people like take a beat, just wait, think about it, take Mm -hmm. a breath, meditate on it and make sure that this is really what you want. Because Mm -hmm. if you've been and you probably can attest to this, the inner workings of these companies that look so glamorous on the outside Mm -hmm. are often highly dysfunctional Mm -hmm. from the top down on the inside. And it you have to do your research and make sure. Is this really what I want? And I think that goes even for creative projects or um, passion projects, which we're going to get into yours in a moment. Mm -hmm. But it all sounds good. But like really taking that thing apart and saying, is this the right time? Mm -hmm. And is this something that I could be invested in long term, even when things are not going great? Yeah, I think that people fail to realize there's no com- perfect company. Mm-hmm. Even if it's your company, if you're an entrepreneur. Right. It's most certainly going to yeah, be the, perfect. There's no company that's perfect. So you have to make sure that you can be the person that's invested and give your all when you do it. Like, even if you do decide to go into a company like, all right, I really want to just work for this company. I'm going to go be an executive assistant and I'm going to learn as much as I can. Like, that's fine. But go in there invested. Go in there knowing that you're going to learn. Go in there saying, I'm going to be an executive assistant, but I'm going to try to take on as much projects as I can. Mm -hmm. Just don't go in there like I'm in and I'm going to get the internal job. So I'm just going to wait it out and see what pops up. Like people do that. Right. And I think that that's just kind of like, again, half effort. It's like, it's, it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way at all. I'm a living witness to that. (laughs) Um, So let's talk a little bit about startups specifically and diversity, Mm -hmm. because there is still sort of like a prototype Um, it's getting better, but there's a prototype for like the startup founder. I listen to how I built this almost Mm -hmm. every week. I hear all the stories. Um, and it still is very much dominated by, let's say it, white people. Mm -hmm. Right. And then they, yeah, white men, they, and then they bring in their friends that Mm -hmm. they rode with at Cornell. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. So they're all at the top doing Mm -hmm. all these great things and the access to capital. There's a disparity there, which we've spoken about on this show. People of color just don't have access to the money, right. Mm -hmm. To be able to have the runway to even work on an idea long enough for it to be profitable. Mm -hmm. Do you see that tide turning anytime soon? Yes. 
I may be just super optimistic. Okay. But one thing I have learned working at TED is that there are a lot of people of color who are starting to get into venture capitals and, and investments and breaking out the norm. And they are trying to teach other people and they're trying to spread that knowledge. And I am so happy for that mm-hmm. because even though we don't have the money or the resources at this point, we are making the effort to get there. So it may not happen in the next four or five years. It may not even happen for me to live to see it. But I do think that at this point, we are building the foundation and we are building the necessary, taking the necessary steps to be big in the startup, the startup culture, to be big in venture capitalists, to be big in anything that we do, because it's starting to be very adamant that we're not getting the help from other people. No, we're not. Yeah. And be clear, we we set trends. Mm-hmm. We drive the culture. So we have that piece yeah. already. I think it's just the infrastructure and the money, the, yeah. the capital and the, the tactical skills and everything access to information. Is, everything is strategy. Mm-hmm. I don't think that people are strategic enough. I think that we think we can just do and not actually, again, go back to the, the research, go back to how this works and and what's necessary. There's um, a young lady by the name of Alex Wolf. She talks about how people are monetizing our culture and not giving us our credit or the money. Like black women have set trends for so many things. And when we do it, it's sexualized, it's ridiculed, considered ghetto, whatever the case may be. But if you throw it on a Kardashian Mm -hmm. or you throw it on anybody, it's kind of like, wow, look at fashion. And we're like, but our baby has been laid. So let me just say this. (laughs) When they referred to cornrows as boxer braids, I was like, okay, I'm I'm done. I'm like, y'all don't even know the struggle. We've been and you going just through. did the West Indian I definitely, so I'm sorry. It's so no, bad. I do, apologize I do it at work great. all the time. Like, I remember being at work one time and some woman, she was Ethiopian and I had been at work maybe three months already. And I probably sat maybe two seats over her. She came over, she tapped me. And she was like, are you West Indian? I said, how did you know? Because I was literally doing nothing, just typing. She was like, I've heard you suck your teeth in so many different ways over the past three months. Like you have levels to it. And I was like, wow. West Indians, know. man, it's it's, it's, it's our trait. You, you can't it definitely get, is. No, no, no. You cannot get around it. I feel so bad for those California people when they don't have any West Indian culture. They're going to be like, what is wrong with They're her? They're going to be asking. They're going to be very confused. Deal it's fine. <laughs> so let's talk about your passion projects. First, same energy podcast. Tell us about that. <laughs> um, so after we talked about all that corporate stuff, now I want to talk about the same is, energy podcast. I just I tell everybody that I am a corporate bird. I don't <laughs> I'm just gonna be very real. I am I'm literally like Claire Huxwell and Cardi B. I'm from the Bronx, okay. West Indian. I am never going to be the posh, very refined, composed person. Like I'm it's a struggle for me not to curse right now like I'm got it, it I've caught myself so many times I'm just very blunt I'm just very 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 Bronx did you like, have to say say that you were a bird though did you yes no I tell people all the time, I tell people I'm a classy bird like a peacock or a phoenix all the time so I mean that's just who I am like I'm very I know I'm very smart I know I'm very good at what I do but I'm not going to not be myself because that's when I can't be good at what I do right when I have to like try to pretend like I'm very composed and that's just not me And I don't think that I would get anywhere in my career or anywhere as I don't think I would have been I say successful, but I guess that's relative. But as far ahead as I would have been Mm -hmm. if I 
was not being myself. When I was in corporate, that's when I wasn't happy. That's when I wasn't doing, that's when I wasn't moving forward. Right. Once I realized like I can bring my authentic self to where I work or what I do, that's when everything started excelling for me. So Same Energy Podcast was actually not, I was not supposed to be on it. Mm-hmm. One of my close friends who's on the podcast, Seth, he is probably one of the funniest men I knew. And every Black History Month, he would do like these Black History facts, like the origin of the do-rag. <laughs> Which is my with, favorite. That's probably my favorite second only to like the Thanksgiving, the Black Thanksgiving y- names. Yes. Yes. Like he would, he would do this and like Shade Room would pick it up. Mm-hmm. And we were like, yo, why aren't you doing like a table book or something? There's a a group of us who are like, again, we come from the hood, but we're all very successful, very, very professional. But we're like, we're, we're still from the hood. Like we still Mm -hmm. joke on each other. Like you're going to catch these jokes. So I was like, look, I can make, I can do the strategy for you. I can help you set this up. And I don't mind doing behind the scenes things. I'm fine with behind the scenes. And he was like, you know, I'll just do it. I'm my other homie. So I was like, all right, I will do it. I set up the meetings for them. Somehow, I got behind the mic. It was kind of like, oh, you'll do a few episodes, get us warmed up. And it was like, you know, you can never leave now. Like you're on the show. And I'm like, wait, excuse me? With a bunch of dudes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is always, I've always kind of been like the girl with a bunch of guys. Like I'm not very girly. Mm -hmm. So I've always been kind of like, the girl with the guys, like the home girl. So it just came very naturally. And it was kind of like, wow, I'm on this ignorant podcast with these boys. Please don't ever let my job hear about it. But I mean, my job doesn't care. Like the fact that I can work someplace where my job doesn't care is kind of like, wait, I'm not going to get fired because y'all know I drink Hennessy. Like, I'm <laughs> like, this is, this is, this is the dream for me. Right. So, um, it's just, I love the podcast because we're very blunt and we talk about anything. And it's kind of like giving that opportunity to know that there are people who are out here who work in corporate, who want to be successful, who want to grow professionally, but still can like kick it, talk ignorantly. And maintain their identity. Maintain their identity. Like I think so much of where we've grown up has kind of like influenced us and it's made us be able to take a lot of things because when you have homeboys, they're joking on you. Of course. Like my male friends do not care. Like, I remember I went outside one time and it was like, damn, you didn't put no gel to your edges, did you? You just came outside looking all wild. Like, you're not even, you weren't even going to try to catch a man today, were you? And I was like, wow, okay. But like being able to have those interactions with my male mm-hmm. friends, it sounds crazy, but when things come up at work and they're like, you know, constructive criticism, I'm like, literally somebody came from my eyebrows two days ago. So you you're telling me that this. my email isn't constructed properly? This is light work. Like, mm-hmm. so I... I I feel like a lot of people who have come from the hood, the part of the Bronx, part of Brooklyn that may not be like the Park Slope or the Williamsburg right. now. Those are the people who are like, yo, we've been through it. We've we've hustled. We worked so hard to get here. We're going to keep doing it. And when you forget about that, it kind of makes you forget about what brought you here and how to move to keep excelling. So absolutely. I think that's why I love the podcast. And then just being able to talk about things that it's a release. Like you just talk about things that you can't. And when you talk about it with guys, you always get a great perspective of what they're thinking because who really knows what men are thinking sometimes I'm still trying to figure that out but that's Girl, a whole other I don't podcast think any, episode I don't think anybody knows itself. but that's fine yeah so that was one that's one of the passion projects um and you have a blog which yes. you have put to the side for now but maybe picking back up tell us yeah, about that I um so deliberate epiphanies I put it to the side for a little bit just kind of figuring out what I wanted to do 
professionally that's bringing in the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working so much on at TED. Um, I took a little bit of time to travel. I took a little bit of time to start working with um, Ad Color, which is a diversity and inclusion um, nonprofit. And that kind of just went to the wayside for a little bit. But I do plan on bringing it back. But it's a blog that basically um, was a collective of random things to help you move forward or get through your day just to help um, motivate you, inspire mm-hmm. you, even if it's something that's small, like, OK, I got a discount to go to this course, like finding little things to help you better you to make sure that you still keep moving forward. And it started with when I worked at TED, sending out these new letter, newsletters, not newsletters, but emails like, hey, I came across the TED Talk. I know all y'all are interested in things like this. Here you go. After I sent it out, sometimes I would like add a few thoughts to it. And then it came to me kind of just sending it out weekly mm-hmm. from my TED email. And then I was like, okay, I know I'm not going to be a TED forever. Um, I don't know if this is actually allowed. I might be like putting myself to get fired. <laughs> so... Let me move this over to MailChimp. Let me move this over to a website. I started sending it via MailChimp and then I created just kind of like a blogger site. Um, it took a long time for me to actually move there because, again, imposter syndrome, perfectionist. It was like wanting every single thing to be perfect. Wanting every single launch. thing to be perfect. But then it was also like, who do I think I am putting these like random emails into a website? Like saying I have a website, who cares? And it was just kind of like, there's so many websites that people don't care about. What's one more? So I, right. I kind of did it. And it was just like, at least people can go back and do it. And I can say that I've done it. Um, I think that also there's a lot of pressure. Sometimes people think that they start things and if they don't finish, it's going to be the ends of the world. Um, And that was a lot of things. I wasn't sure if I can maintain the website. And that stopped me a lot. And because of that, it was kind of scary. But now that I stop and I'm like, I had to get past that. Mm-hmm. There are times in life where things are going to be a precedent, no matter what it is. And that's just how I, that's where I'm at right now with the with the site. And I don't think that it's dead or whatever. I can always go back. I can always start a new one. People ask me about it all the time. And I'm just like, it kind of other things have taken point. And then. I'm going to go back eventually, hopefully. Yeah. And to me, that is liberating when mm-hmm. you can say, I've got to put this to the side now. Mm-hmm. May come back, may not. May come back as something else in a different iteration or form. And I think there's this belief amongst 26ers that like once it's out there, mm-hmm. I have to keep it up. And if I don't, I can never relaunch. Like mm-hmm. it's just over. That or failed, like, that ceased. Or I look yeah. like a failure. Yeah, I look right. like a failure. Like, oh, you failed at your project or you're lazy mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. And it's like, you also are, people are keeping you accountable. Right. But after a while, sometimes that accountability is a pressure. Right. It's kind of like, where, where's the post? Why didn't you post today? Where's the next episode of the podcast? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like, be easy. Like, <laughs> what? I have to go to work. Right. Something's happened. This, and the thing is, even if you, if you didn't want to share what was happening personally, sometimes it's kind of like that's your answer and now people are asking you what's going on and you're at a space where you may not even want to like share what's happening but people are badgering you so you have to think about those things but then you also have to be in a space where you're kind of like chill out I have some things to handle this is not about you this is about me right and when I come back I'll come back bigger and better yeah and ready and prepared to do this the right way I definitely I don't want to just write to write Mm -hmm. like I don't want to write because someone's expecting it I want to write because it's heartfelt 
it's genuine and it's an art or a craft. From an inspired place. Yes, exactly. So we're going to let you get out of here soon. But tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. So uh, I think that going back to when I started working at TED was one of the times. I will say this. I think that every day is ordinary. <laughs> so you have to be extraordinary. You have to bring your extraordinary self to every day because nothing is going to make it extraordinary unless it's you. And when I started working at TED, it was kind of like the most ordinary times for me. It sounds crazy, but I had just gotten laid off from my previous job because I was at the point where I had just hated it so much, but I was still there. And I just phoning it in. Yeah, they they forced me pretty much out. Um, My grandfather, who pretty much raised me as my his his child, had passed away and I was just like lost. Like I remember being in my living room kind of just like, yo, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. I was on unemployment, but that didn't even cover my rent. I was about to say that's like no money. Didn't cover my rent. I tried to, I even tried to get food stamps and they told me that I made too much money on unemployment to qualify for food stamps, even though my unemployment didn't cover my rent. And I was just like, wow, I am in trouble. Like, right. and I, I was doing the desperation thing. I was sending out emails to anybody applying to any job and I got an email from Ted and I thought it was spam. Like I remember I was like, Poof, they are trying to send me up. This is some Nigerian man. <laughs> the Nigerian to, scam. The Nigerian scammer. He's about to ask me for my bank account because he works at TED, but he has to clear my background <laughs> first. I know I'm about to get got. He's about to be in trouble, though, because I am negative right now. So <laughs> like you got nothing to take, bro. I remember having this conversation with the woman and I realizing, wow, this is actually a legitimate thing. And she said to me in my phone interview and it, it sounds small, but I've, it's always sat with me. She said to me in my phone interview interview what makes you special for this role and it sounds like a really normal interview question but at that point I was so low in my life I literally was on the phone interview with tears and I don't think she realized I mean I hope she didn't realize I still got the job but I was in the phone interview with in tears because I didn't have the answer Mm -hmm. and I had to ask her to hold on I had to pretend like my, my phone was breaking up and I had to sit down. I sat down and I prayed really quick and I had to say, Siobhan, you're no one is going to believe you if you do not believe yourself. And take that five minutes in which I pretend. I, was, I don't think it was five minutes. It seemed like five minutes. I was about to say that's a long time. It was a long time, but it was probably up. like maybe a minute or two. Just like, hey, can you give me a second? Um, And I came back and I found in that minute prayer and talking to myself and really having to kind of push all the the clouds and the negativity that was in my in my space out and tell her what made me special Mm -hmm. or why I should be there and she was like wow I can tell that you really mean that and I remember getting off the phone and bawling like bawling because I just I believed it and Mm -hmm. but literally 10 minutes before I was in I was in robot mode I was like this is a job I'm excited but I'm giving you robot answers and I had to kind of dig into myself to remember who I was to make sure that I showed it to other people to move forward. And that's kind of that moment was a shift in my life Mm -hmm. in general, because ever since then, it's a reminder that 
I can't let whatever's going on kind of take me down or make that bad day or bad moment dictate a bad life. And it's it's just, like I said, been the shift and it's set the precedent for me moving forward whenever things start to feel like it's getting overwhelming, kind of making sure I do something. So I feel like I'm anxious or not depressed, but I feel like kind of like that heaviness mm-hmm. I have to move. I have to do something. I have to remind myself whether it's affirmation, yoga, whatever. But that moment shifted a lot of my life for me. And it speaks to no matter the outward circumstance, mm-hmm. you have to go inward first. Mm-hmm. If, if you can't get yourself perception in check, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what changes on the outside. Even if your circumstances improve for the better, mm-hmm. the minute that next challenge comes and the season shifts and you're in your wilderness experience again, mm-hmm. you're going to go right back down. It's, yeah. and it's not for me, it's not a total recall. Like every day you don't wake up like, you know what? I am it. You have to continually go yeah. inward and remind yourself and repeat those messages. It's a every day you have to. So it's a work every day. Like you cannot just think you're going to wake up and have this one shift and your life has changed. Like it's never going to be like mm-hmm. that. Every day is going to be different. There's going to be ups. There's going to be downs. People are going to pass away. Money is going to be lost. People are going to hurt you. You're going to hurt people. You're going to be disappointed in yourself. People are going to disappoint you. And if you think that everything is constant in Lisa Frank stickers and rainbows <laughs> and sunshine, you are about to be setting yourself up for disappointment. But when you know what you need when things are at its lowest and when you still try despite you feeling like you don't have any hope or you don't have any faith or you don't know if it's going to get better Mm -hmm. those are the defining moments those are the things that push people forward and I think that is a great note to end on where can people find you online um you can find me at just call me sio sio um on Twitter, definitely Twitter. <laughs> Make sure you have a Twitter and Instagram. Um, same energy pod on Twitter, same energy podcast on Instagram. And um, I'll be revamping everything for deliver- deliberate epiphanies within the next month or two. Um, I'm actually trying to do a soft relaunch mm-hmm. um, on my birthday, which is January 6th. Uh, so hopefully um, all that, but all those links will are still on my, my personal pages. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for your West Coast chapter, even uh, if you have some trepidation. Listen. I'm about to move out there like an IG, honey. I have no bed, no furniture. Um, my apartment. You all like, my pictures like about to. Be, it's like you're going to All Star Weekend. Listen, like, just all my to pictures catch are about one. to be a blank, uh, white wall, nothing else but mad natural light. It's about to, I have nothing. I'm literally going out there with myself and my bags and the little bit of stuff that I'm taking with me from New York. From, Clean slate. Yeah. Clean so, slate. I'm excited. Well, I appreciate you coming on before. Thank you you got to go so home. Thank you so much. Yes. Pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this. To our listeners make sure you find Siobhan online check out that same energy podcast it's, don't judge it's me. a specific segment of our listeners that are going to be into that I'll tell yes. you right now don't judge me but make sure you check it out and as always remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day take care thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast I am your host Delisha this episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.